the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. Glory be to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, both now and ever, and unto the ages of all ages, amen. So, Jesus calls Matthew from being a tax collector, and he calls him, and he becomes one of the apostles and one of the evangelists, and eventually he becomes a martyr, and he gives up his life for Christ. And then Jesus goes over to Matthew's house, and they have um, a feast of some kind there, and Matthew in, invites Jesus and his disciples, and he lets Jesus and his disciples meet a lot of his old friends. And of course, the scribes and the Pharisees don't like that. And they say, you know, how is it, how can your disciples sit and eat with uh, people who are sinners? And really what they mean is not how can your, uh, you know, how is it that your disciples are sitting with people who are sinners, but how are you sitting with people who are, who are sinners? And then Jesus gives them these two parables. He says, if you take a piece if you want to patch an old garment and you take a piece of cloth, which is new, um, and, and you sew it onto the old garment um, and you wash it and dry it a few times, it's going to tear away because the new one has unshrunk, hasn't shrunk yet. And as it shrinks, it's going to tear away from the, the new one and it will make the tear even worse. Um, and even more so, it just won't match. You know, um, if, if, if you have a, you know, like a, a, a nice, I don't know, sport jacket or something, um, and it's, uh, you know, gray or whatever, and, it, and the elbows are starting to look a little, um, a little tired, and you, and you patch them, even if you patch them with the same cloth and it's gray, but it's new, it will show, and it won't match. And then he tells them this business about wineskins, which maybe is a little bit foreign to us, because we don't really, I mean, I don't know about any of you, but I didn't really grow up on a vineyard and I don't know exactly what the process is and what they used to do. But wineskins were these, um, these um, like, a, like a, a, a leather sack, teardrop shaped sack, you know, like kind of like a pear shaped sack um, with a small opening at the top. And they would fill it with... Um, with grape juice um, and whatever fermenting agents were necessary and then they would seal it and uh, as the <coughs> fermenting agents that were in there, I don't know if they're, if they're, if they're yeast or they're bacteria or what they are and they, uh, they do their, <coughs> their biochemical thing that causes like the fermentation, some of you are in like biochemistry and you know better than me and they basically cause that transformation from carbohydrates into into alcohol and in so doing they produce some gases and in so doing they stretch the wineskins and they would just hang the wineskins out in the sun to create that nice warm environment that would allow these microorganisms to do their work so in so doing the wineskins would stretch due to the gases and then they would also harden um, and so they go from being soft pliable leather to a, to a hardened container and they were actually quite useful later on for carrying for ca carrying other other fluids because they were waterproof and they were large and they were light when they were empty so they would be easy to take it to a well and fill it up with water for example as opposed to carrying a, a clay jar which is heavy on the way there and heavier even on the way back so they were useful right 
But what's the one thing you couldn't fill it with? You couldn't fill it with more wine and leave it out in the sun so that you can make a more, sorry, not wine, but like grape juice so that you could make more wine. Why? Because it's hardened now and if it stretches, it will burst and you'll lose the wine and you will lose the wineskins. What's Jesus talking about here? St. <clears throat> Cyril explains, and I'm, I'm trying to go quickly because I want to get rather from just what understanding the text to understanding this in our lives. What St. Cyril explains this. St. Cyril was really always giving the, showing us the transition from the Old Testament to the New. And he's trying to tell us this. He's trying to tell us that the Old Testament, the Old Covenant was based on the law. Don't do this, don't do that, don't do that, don't do that. Do this, do this, do this, do that. If your cow falls in a pit on the Sabbath day and another person sees it and he doesn't take the cow out and the cow dies, then he has to reimburse you half of the value of the cow because he's just as guilty in the death of the cow as you are. So you should absorb half of the cost and he should absorb half of the, all this stuff. Do this, don't do that, right? That was the law. And the law is good, St. Paul explains to us. The law is not bad. Although the law revealed sin, and sin made us feel guilty and ashamed, and sometimes makes us, makes us flee from God rather than run towards Him, the law is God's, number one. It is good, and God is good. And the law is not bad in and of itself. The law just drew a line for us in the sand. Many times when a new couple are together and they want to live a righteous and holy life and they want to have like a holy court period of courtship, they'll come and ask me, Father John, what are the kind of boundaries of uh, like our physical relationship and sort of this time of courtship or this time of engagement before we get married? They want to know where is the line in the sand, okay? And the line in the sand is sin. When you cross that line, you've crossed into the boundaries of sin. And you said on the other side of the line, you're living in righteousness. So the law revealed to us the line. The law defined things for us, but it didn't tell us how to do it. It didn't tell us how to achieve it. The law told us what, but it didn't tell us how. The new covenant is a covenant of love. The new covenant is a covenant of grace. The new covenant is a covenant of opportunity. The new covenant says, come, live, live in this life of grace. Come, live with me. Come, abide in me, Jesus says, and I will top up the rest. Do your best and I will top up the rest. Do what you can, not to earn my favor, not to earn my grace. That is given to you. Come, do your best to honor me as I have honored you to honor me, and I will do the rest. I'll top up the rest. And what, what St. Cyril is trying to tell us, Jesus is trying to explain to us, and St. Cyril is exposing, that you cannot, you cannot take the life of grace and try to fit it in the law. It will burst the law. It will burst the wineskins. It will tear the, the unshrunk, the, the unshrunk cloth will tear the shrunken cloth. They won't fit together. I can't take the life of grace and then start trying to apply that to the law, which was what 90% of us do. 90% of us know that God's lo God loves us, and we know that God will accept us as we are. And we know that He calls us to Himself regardless of where we've been and what we've done. And all He's asking of us is to come, 
with a broken and contrite heart. He's, all he's asking of us is to come with a repentant heart and come and ask for forgiveness. And he will grant it. And he will open the doors of new life to us. And we take that and we say, thank you, God, for how good you are. And because you're so good, God, I'm going to pray and I'm going to fast and I'm going to do this and I'm going to do good works and I'm going to this and I'm going to that. And then we get ourselves all tied up in all of these rules of I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that. And then we find that we find that the joy in our spiritual life and the joy in our life with God has been stolen away from us. Why? Because I say I'm going to pray all seven prayers, uh, all seven canonical prayers of, uh, uh, of in, in the book of hours. And in the end, I end up doing very little. Maybe the first day and the second day I do it, but the third day onwards, I forget and I get lazy and I get and I slow down and this and that, right? And all of us, right? So we've started in this path of grace, but then we've applied the law to it. We've started in the path of grace. We've started in the path of God will, will take us as we are and make us just as he is. And all of a sudden, we've added but and a whole bunch of conditions which Jesus never put for us. And that's what Jesus is saying to the Pharisees and scribes. And that's what he's saying to you and me. What he's saying to you and me is all we need to do is accept to abide in Christ. What does that mean? That means to live with him his life. <clears throat> that means to live with him his life. Jesus was incarnate and he's calling you and me to be his incarnation in your workplace. Jesus wants to enter your workplace in the flesh, not in a philosophy, not in a, 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 you know, a, like a, a, you know, a creed of the workplace, not a, a, as the golden rule. All of those things are great. All of those things are, are fantastic. Jesus said them and they're excellent. But Jesus wants to enter your workplace or your classroom, or your wherever you go from 9 to 5 on a daily basis. He wants to be incarnate there. As he was incarnate on earth here, he wants to be incarnate there. How? How is he going to take flesh there in you? As you live his life, as you live his life in your workplace, in your home, in your classroom, in wherever, whatever your context is, <clears throat> He will take life there. And that's what the reading from Ephesians was about. St. Paul was telling us, St. Paul was telling us how to relate to one another. And I'm not going to discuss all of it, but um, as I mentioned in the introduction to the readings, that it's taken from uh, Ephesians chapter 6 from the first verse. Ephesians chapter 5 was about how husbands and, uh, and wives ought to live with one another and how they ought to be with one another, not just how they ought to live with one another. Then he talks about how children should be with their parents. Then he talks about how servants should be with their masters. I'm just going to highlight one thing, um, one thing uh, about that. When he's talking about how servants should be with their masters, he, 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 says, to, he says to us, Whatever you do, do it in goodwill, as to the Lord and not to men knowing that whatever anyone does, he will receive the same from the Lord, whether he is a slave or free. So he's speaking to the servants here, and he's telling them, whatever you do, do it for the Lord. Don't do it for your master. Don't do it for your boss. Don't do it for your professor. 
Don't do it for your, you know, whoever it is that you're trying to please, right? And he's telling us very clearly, a little bit earlier on, he says, don't do it with eye service as men pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, as a slave of Christ. Don't do what you're doing so other people will see what you're doing and will be happy or will be pleased or will pat you on the back. Do it because we, you know that you receive a reward from God himself, right? So that's just, that's just one example. And I'm not going to dwell on each one of the different kinds of relationships, parents with children, husbands, wives, and so on. But just as, as, as one example, what would ask yourself today in your, in your work or in your home or in your, in your primary occupation, whatever your primary occupation is, how would you do it differently if you knew that you were doing it for God and only God and only God was the one who would see and know what you were doing? Suppose you have a report that you have to submit on Tuesday, right? Suppose you know no one is going to look at that report. Not a single soul is going to look at that report. You can write, you can make a title page and put 20 blank pieces of paper there and bind it up and send it away. Or I guess people don't use paper anymore. I'm like in, from the Stone Age or something, right? So, right, you can write, you can PDF this blank PDF that all it has is a file name and a title page. And you know for certain nobody is going to open it except God himself, right? Your boss is not going to look at it. Nobody's going to look at it. How would you do it? Suppose you knew that for fact, okay? But only God is going to read it. How would you do it? How would that change what you do every day? That's what St. Paul is asking us. He's asking us, who, whose approval are we seeking? Jesus says in John 7, this verse rocks my world. Like every time I think of it, it makes me question it makes me question the, 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 the trueness and the depth of my Christianity. He says, how can you say that you believe in God when you still seek honor from one another? How can you say that you believe in God when you still seek honor from one another? John 7, I think verse 17, <clears throat> but you can look it up. So, Jesus is inviting us to live his life. Living his life means to, to live the way he lived. And I just took an example here of servants and masters together. But let us, let us take it one step further in our relationships with each other. How do we see the people around us? Do we see, like, what, it, what is it? One, I can't wait till I get to heaven and meet Matthew and meet Jesus and ask Jesus, what is it that you saw in Matthew? How many tax collectors did you see in, 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 in Judea and in Jerusalem and Israel at that time? Why was it Matthew? What did you see in him that made you call him? And you knew, you knew there's something special about him and indeed he became your disciple. And indeed he answered. He left everything immediately and followed Jesus. He ended up being one of the apostles. He ended up being an evangelist. All these great things that he did. How did you see? What did you see in him? I don't have an answer for you. But this morning, as I was thinking, reading the, the gospel and just thinking and mulling it over, I thought of a few things that maybe Jesus saw in him. The first thing I thought of is Jesus saw opportunity. 
And all these, these three, I'm just pick three things at random that I, that I think that maybe Jesus saw in Matthew. And I think Jesus sees them in you and in me. And I think Jesus wants us to learn how to see these things in other people. So think, think about these things that, that we'll be talking about very briefly now. Not only as God, how God sees me and how God wants me to see myself, but how God also wants me to see other people. God saw Matthew with opportunity. God saw in Matthew someone who could take the gospel and preach it in all the world. God saw in, in this tax collector, in this person who was extorting for money, money from people unjustly, in this man who was, who was cruel and uncompassionate, he saw in him a martyr, someone who would die for his faith and die for the Lord Jesus Christ. How did he see that? How did he see that? I don't know. But God is calling you and me to look at people with an eye of opportunity. To look at ourselves with an eye of opportunity. And to know that God sees us with an eye of opportunity. How do we know that? When, when God sent Jesse to go choose a new king. Because Saul was completely unwilling to follow God. And he goes to Jesse and he sees the, the tallest and the smartest and the brightest and the fastest and all of this. And all seven sons. And he doesn't choose any of them. And God tells Samuel... He tells him in 1 Samuel 16, 7, that God does not look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. He says, people look at the outward appearance. The Lord does not look at the outward appearance. He looks at the heart. So he's telling Samuel, he's telling Samuel I see something deeper down in this person that you don't see. I want to tell you the truth. I confess to you, I don't always see the opportunity in people. In fact, I often miss it and discover it a year or two later in my relationship with them and think to myself how how foolish I was not to see how great how great of an opportunity this person this person has to serve God and to be a beautiful light for God. I want to tell you today, I want to tell you and to tell myself today, let us pray from all of our hearts and said us, Lord, let us look at people with the eye of opportunity that you see people with. Give me, Lord, the same eye that you see people with. The second thing that we mentioned, but I can't help but mention it again, is the eye of grace. God looks at people with grace. God sees how much you're able to do and he tops it up to perfection. He sees you and he tops it up to perfection. So never be afraid. Never be afraid that you're not good enough. In fact, I rejoice in the fact that I'm not good enough. St. Paul says, I boast in my infirmities. Like, he's saying, I brag about how unfit I am to be an apostle. He says this in the context of him healing the sick and raising the dead. Obviously, obviously, with how unfit he is... God is willing and happy to work with him. And God is willing and happy to work with us. In, if, in the book of Ephesians, chapter 4, just, just before the part that we read, St. Paul says that God wants 
to fill us up, to be a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. God is working in you and in me to bring us to the fullness, to the fullness of Christ himself. It's taken me a long time to see myself with the eyes of grace that God sees me with. To see, to see all of my shortcomings and my failures as something which is God, God is using to bring to perfection. That on the last day He may present me perfect before His Father. And I've made progress in that department. I'm telling you the truth. And I pray the same for you. To learn to see ourselves as as something that the Lord Jesus Christ himself is going to present to his father. He will never present anything half done or broken or fallen to his father. He'll present something perfect and beautiful to his father. So he will present me. Now that said, sometimes I look at the faults and mistakes of the people around me. And I'm very hard on them. And one day, as I was being hard on somebody... As I was being hard on somebody, I felt like God was asking me, John, do you believe in grace? And I answered, I don't know if it was God or if it was my mind, or, but I answered the little voice that was talking to me. Yes, of course, Lord, I believe in grace. He said, and is grace only for you, John? I said, of course not. The grace of God is offered to all who will accept it freely. And I felt like God was saying, so if you're far from perfect now, but I am bringing you to perfection. Am I not doing the same for your brother or for your sister? Or for whoever that you, you can see their faults, but you can't see all the work that I'm doing in their lives? And I felt terribly convicted. I felt terribly convicted. God is calling you and me to treat every single person, not as though they will one day become perfect as Christ but to treat them as though they are as perfect as Christ himself. Although they may clearly show us otherwise, they may clearly show us much harm in some, some instances, but God is calling us to treat them as we would treat Christ himself. Because we believe that he is working a perfect work in me and in them. The last thing I'll share with you is that God is calling us to walk in fear and in truth. What does that mean? That means this. When Jesus meets the woman caught in the act of adultery, and they want to stone her, and he manages to get her out of it, and he tells her, woman, where are those accusers of yours? And they said, they've gone. She says, they're gone. And he says, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. He doesn't tell her, neither do I condemn you. It's okay. I know it's really hard. You know your husband's a real, you know, piece of work. And, you know, you find you found yourself looking elsewhere. He didn't say that to her. He told her. He called a spade a spade. He told her, go and sin no more. I've had the real blessing and opportunity in my life to meet a handful of people that were really walking in the fear of God. St. Anthony says, if you want to acquire the fear of God, acquire for yourself a friend who has the fear of God. I've never preached a sermon on the fear of God because I've never really heard a sermon that was that good about the fear of God. 
I've read everything I could find, and I've heard every sermon I, I could find on the fear of God. And I'll tell you, none of them came anywhere close to revealing to me what the fear of God is as meeting someone who has the fear of God. Someone who has the fear of God is someone who is standing in the presence of God. So if I'm standing and talking to you and a few cuss words slip out of my mouth and you are standing before God himself in all of his glory, what are you going to do? You're going to turn to me and say, John, try not to use those words. Right? Out of your love for me, you won't be shy to provide some correction. You won't be shy to speak the truth, to say the truth in love. St. Paul tells us to speak the truth in love, not to speak the truth harshly or cruelly or in a discouraging way. No, but to speak the truth in love. God is calling you and me to speak the truth in love. Jesus answered the Pharisees and the scribes who were accusing him and accusing his disciples. He answered them with the truth in love. He didn't embarrass them. He didn't embarrass their pride. He didn't embarrass their arrogance. He didn't rebuke them openly. He did elsewhere, but he didn't in this instance. God is calling you and me to speak the truth in love, to offer grace, to see people with the eyes of opportunity, but not to deny the truth. Sin is sin. Truth is truth. And we ought to live so. Why? Because I'm standing before God himself. And that's the secret to all of this. The secret to, to living the life of Christ in my workplace, to living the life of Christ at home and in all of these places and in all of these different contexts is to realize that God is standing right before me now in the fullness of His glory. If you need some encouragement of what that means, that He's in the fullness of His glory, read Revelation chapter 1. Read Isaiah chapter 6. These great men of God, when they saw God in the fullness of His glory, they did the equivalent in their time of us saying they wet their pants. They were stunned. They were blown away. They were awestruck. Their hearts skipped a beat. Use whatever terminology you want. So God wants you and I to live in that same awe at work. That report you have due on Tuesday, you're doing it for God. Not for your boss or this person or that person. What should it look like? How should I do it? Right? That's, that's what God is asking us today. He's asking us to live in His presence. To live in the fear of Him. And the, and, and the fear of Him means this. The fathers define it for us. They say, what is fear? Fear is an in intense emotion or feeling of anxiety at the thought of the loss of something dear. So it could be at the thought of the loss of your job or the thought of the loss of someone whom you love or at the thought of the loss of your communion with God. God is offering us communion. He's offering us oneness with Him. And He's calling us to live in a, certain, in a certain fear, in a certain terror of losing 
of losing that. May God give you and give me to live like Him, to see like Him, to see ourselves like He sees us, and to see everyone else that we meet as He sees us, just as He saw Matthew and saw opportunity in him and treated him with grace, but was not shy to speak the truth either. Glory be to God forever and ever. Amen. I have sinned. Forgive me, my fathers and mothers and brothers and sisters. Please pray for me.